Okay, everybody, welcome in to 10 Questions, a bonus episode here on the channel, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. I'm so glad that you're here, and I want to get right to your questions after a very special announcement right after this bumper. So I'll be right back. Yeah, it's 10 Questions with Tim on Tim Hatch Live, and I'm glad you're here. Let me know in the chat that you are here, uh, and let me know... What's on your mind as well? We already have a question in the chat, which I'm going to get to right away because you know what? When you show up early for the chat, uh, you get your question answered first. It's a bonus edition of Tim Hatch Live 10 Questions, and I am so glad to tell you that I have a power supply now, backup power supply right over here to my right, which is making it possible for me to not worry about if the power glitches over here and we go dead like we did last week. What, what a mess. Maybe that's why we needed a bonus episode uh, this week. So yeah, 10 questions with Tim and a special day, February 10th, 2022. This is the 10th of February. It's the 10th edition of 10 questions. And it's a very special day for me because today my father, Howard Hatch is 80 years young. Happy birthday, dad, 80 years old today. Love you. Love you, mom. Hardest working Man I know, toughest man I know, strongest man I know. And I thank God that these two people are my parents. Love you guys. Happy birthday, Dad. Lunch on me very soon. <laughs> and something else, I'm sure. A nice gift. Oh, okay. So, um, other than happy birthday, Dad, uh, 10 questions also features my question. I'm going to ask a question on 10 questions. And this is, I'm stalling just to get some chat loaded up. Uh, by the way, I see your chat there. Fantastic. Keep chatting. Hi, Steve. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Jax. Hi, John. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Anchor. Hi, Shane. Hi, uh, Joel and John and Nicole. Did I say Nicole? Yes, I think I did. So glad that you guys are with me on the chat. Love you guys. Wish my dad happy birthday. In the, in the chat below. My question for 10 questions is, is this question of the day for 10 questions. Do you eat breakfast food at lunch or dinner? Let me know in the chat below, because that's a big one in my house. In fact, when my, when my wife and I first got married, she started making breakfast food at dinner. And I was like, that's not right. That's ungodly. That's unbiblical. We had a big fight about it. Uh, well, long story short, I now eat breakfast food at dinner. <laughs> Because, because happy life, happy wife. Am I right? Uh, no, no. Happy wife, happy life. Am I right? Okay, so that's my question of the day. Let me know in the chat. Do you eat breakfast food for lunch or dinner? Or is it sinful? And if you can find me a text to prove that I was originally right way back in the early days of my marriage, I'd really be thankful for that. <laughs> so glad you guys are here. See the chat is loading up. Uh, let's go back to that real quick. Hi, Tony. Wendy, Brian, Christian Praise, Worship and Sermons, Jonathan Russo, glad you guys are here. And everybody's saying you can have breakfast anytime. Shoot, I need somebody on my side. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. You know why? Because I, I have breakfast. I have breakfast for lunch and dinner. It's fantastic. There's nothing better than bacon at dinner. My word. It's like on the eighth day, God created bacon. Amen. Okay, we should probably get to the questions as the uh, questions are already here. But before we get to it, if I scroll up here on the chat, let's see if I can do this. And I'm alone in the studio today, guys, so pray for me. 
Uh, Jax Giannotti, way up here on the chat. And I don't know if we can... There's some way I can do this, which I forgot how to do it. Some way I can do this, I know. <laughs> Where I can interact with the chat. I can't. So I'm just going to tell you what he asks. He said, here's a question I know you get a lot. This is up in the chat. How can one learn to study the Bible in a way that brings verses together like you do? Okay, well, thank you, first of all, for your compliment up above that. I'm glad that the show and the channel helps you in your faith and helps you to grow in Christ. I would like to say that the best resource that you can get right at the bat, this is an easy question to answer for me because I love studying the Bible. Best question, the best resource that you can get right now on the market is called the New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. The New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, and it looks like this. Let me see if I can show you the information. There you go. That's what it looks like in print, okay? And uh, it's called the New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. What this does is it helps, it goes through verse by verse. Now look, look where I am, Romans 1, uh, 8, 1, which we were on yesterday, right? So therefore, and then what you see, and I have it in Logos Bible software, so it's all referenced and it moves with my, it scrolls in my Logos Bible software, which by the way is a great program. But it scrolls in, in uh, concert with my Bible text, which is on the left, which you can't see on the screen. But right now, it's going to give me a verse of reference that will, you can see right there, from the one word, therefore, in Romans 8.1, Romans 7.25, look up that verse, Romans 7.6, Romans verse 33 and 34 of Romans 8 here, and then um, in Christ right here, Galatians 3.13. So what I love about Logos is if I click on that, it takes me to Galatians 3.13, just like that. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, and what this um, resource does is it really empowers fast um, Bible study and prep for things like this and for things like even the deep end and everything else that we do on the channel. So the new treasure of scripture knowledge is the best resource that I can recommend for you to get if you are just getting started on um, Bible study, because it's going to tell you, okay, every passage of the Bible that's, that's, um, um, that helps you understand the passage you're studying is right here. It's like a concordance on steroids, okay? So check that out. That's a great place to start. I could tell you a lot more, but that's as far as I can go with the limited time that we have today. My question is getting answered. Pretty much everybody's saying that you can have breakfast for dinner, which, you know what? I guess my wife was right. Crystal, hi, Crystal. Hi, Terry Powers. Hi, Shannon. Shanny1619. Glad you're all here. Let's get to question numero uno today. My fiance, we're discussing whether or not it's okay to clap when the pastor is walking onto the stage to preach. Uh, I see it as a sign of respect while my fiance sees it as praising the pastor rather than God. What's your input on that? Well, you know, this one, when he walks onto the stage to preach, I could go either way. I'm not going to worry about that. I don't think that um, it's a sin to support and and uh, celebrate the person who's going to bring you the word of God. I'm In my biblical understanding, I'm going to bring it back to Ezra 8. Ezra 8 where, I'm sorry, no, Nehemiah 8, where Ezra opens the word. And as soon as he opens the word, the people praise, the people clap, the people say amen. I think that there is a great lack of joy in the church. And so anytime we can get people clapping, laughing, celebrating, I'm for it. I do think that we can idol idolize pastors 
And we do in this culture way more than we should. I am just a man. I am a man with many faults and sins. I, one of the things that I pray when I preach on a regular basis, not always, but usually, which is I pray, Father, forgive your servant. I'm talking about me of his sins for they are many. I want the people to know that I'm just as needful of God's grace as they are every single day. Like we talked about yesterday on the show, that maturity is growing at uh, is a growing awareness of your dependency, your, your your need for God to help you, rather than this idea that you've arrived or that you're you're there and uh, you know you've you've made it. So, I am a big believer in joy. I love laughing. My sermons are uh, they contain a lot of humor. If you like to laugh, you'll probably like my preaching because I think that we have to laugh. Um, a, a, a joyful heart is great medicine. The Scripture says. And I think that if you read the Bible in context, especially Jesus's parables, there's a lot of humor embedded in the contextual insights than you see on the surface. And that's tr- that's just a fact. When you know the, con- the context behind some of the things that Jesus says, people would have been laughing. Maybe they would have been laughing out of disbelief what he was saying, but they were also laughing at some of the funny things that he was saying. So I think um, laughter, joy, expression of we are anticipating something is good today. God is going to speak to us today. I don't think that that is ap- that's bad. I don't think that's praising the pastor. I think that's having joy in the Lord. And I think that sometimes, you know what, and let me just say this too, back to the question so you guys can see what I'm answering. Sometimes, you know, we really treat pastors poorly. And I, I'm not one of those people. Like, thank God, I, my church treats me very, very well. And I love my church. And, and, I think that the people like me or love me. Can I tell you that to have a church celebrate their pastor, bringing them the word of God is something to not kind of sift through this lens of, oh, people are clapping. That might be that might be praising the pastor. They're just happy. They're happy that the pastor is up on the stage. Sometimes that happens when I come out on stage and I don't mind it at all. Actually, I think it's great. Amen. All right. Good to see you. Oh, hey, pastor. We're glad you're here. No problem with that. So, you know, be wary of, making everything dour. Look, this is why a lot of people don't want to go to church because it's always, uh, we're supposed to be sad because God is here. Like, no, no. And then again, at the other end of the spectrum, which your fiance has a point here is, don't idolize the pastor. Understand that he is just a man. He is a man who needs God. Now, he's not actually just a man because he has been given to the church to lead and feed you. So respect and honor him. And actually Hebrews 13 says you should submit to them and obey them that have leadership over you in the Lord so that their work might be a joy and not, not a burden because that would be no benefit to you. If your pastor is happy and healthy, you should be glad. And if supporting him and loving him and taking time to honor him, even with the clapping, I don't think that's a problem at all. I think that you just have to realize that um, some people will look at the pastors if he's the only guy that I should listen to or he's the only guy that should preach or he's the only guy who knows what he's talking about or he somehow everything that he says is you know ex-cathedral is you know it's from Sinai be careful of that mindset and then um, somewhere in the middle right so don't dishonor celebrate don't um, uh, idolatrize idolize Hope that, hope that helps. Thanks for the question. Let's get to question number two on 10 questions today. 
I've seen a lot of statements saying that women should not be pastors or leaders in the church. Oh, good. Very relevant to the last question. What is the biblical reasoning or your thoughts on it? Well, can I tell you that I'm so glad that you have that uh, biblical reasoning slash your thoughts back to back because my thoughts are biblical reasoning. (laughs) My question to you first is, where have you seen statements that say women should be pastors? And the second question is, was it the Bible? Because that's really the final authority in whether or not women should be pastors. The, th- the authority of the church to do what the church should do, and I hope you listen to me very clear- clearly here, is never predicated on the acceptability of the culture or the celebration of the culture or the admiration of the culture. The authority of the church is predicated on the authority of Scripture, always and forever. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and training, correcting and rebuking in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. By the way, that was written to a pastor, a male pastor in Ephesus in the first century by the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy, to whom he also said that only men, males, must be pastors. Women are restricted from pastoral office. Now, what typically happens when you hear things like that? And, you know, if you want the verses, I'll give them to you. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. Uh, Titus 1. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. Uh, on and on. Jesus chose 12 men, not 11 men and one woman. I know who we want to popularize. Mary Magdalene is like an apostle now because it's hip and it's cool and feminists love it. Who cares? We are not interested in doing what the world loves. We are interested in doing what God loves. So the authority of Scripture is very clear, and I think that it's got to be um, it's got to be um, reiterated again and again and again that when the Bible is clear about something, do not take vague scriptures to annihilate or deconstruct clear scriptures. Right? This is what we do because people say, "Well, Paul mentions women in his Thanksgivings in Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 16." So he says they served alongside me in the gospel. Yeah, I've got women that serve alongside me right now in this show. They are serving alongside me in the gospel. They are not pastors, okay? They don't want to be pastors. My wife, thank God, she does not want to be, does not want to be a pastor, does not want to preach. I love that about her because, <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you why. <laughs> I'll let her speak for herself. I'll, I'll speak for what scripture says. Scripture is very clear about this. Now, now what we do is we say, oh, that means that women, Christianity subjugates women. No, it doesn't. Because 1 Peter chapter 3 says that we must honor women. We must live respectfully with women. Women, they are our equal partners in the life of faith. The, when we restrict the pastoral office from women, and by the way, that's the only office that women cannot participate in. Well, the fivefold ministries of the ascended Christ from Ephesians 4, apostle, prophet, evangelist, uh, pastor, and teacher. I think those are all restricted from, um, th- that's the official office, Press. Uh, the, the words I'm thinking of in the Greek, presbyteros, which we get presbytery from, episkopos, which we get bishop from, and um, poimon, which we get shepherd or pastor from. So those are all synonymous. The pastoral role in the church is restricted to men. 
but every other role a woman can have. She can serve in the church. She can lead a ministry in the church. She can, uh, oh, and she's also instructed in Timothy very clearly to teach the younger women. And then the scripture says to teach them how to love their husbands, to be respectful, to be at home, to be busy there. So, you know, again, this does not jive well with 2022 feminism, but it jives very well with clear reading of the scriptures. You're welcome to disbelieve me, but you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with the Lord and his word. I mean, it's kind of funny even too, when I see these hip evangelicals, the young, cool church pastors making their wives pastors with them. It's kind of interesting to me that we see Catholics, even Catholics, who have a diminished view of scripture than us, hold more biblically sound to this reality than cool church evangelical pastors. It's kind of interesting. And I know what's happening because cool church evangelical pastors, they want to be accepted. They want to be liked. They want to be cool with the women in the church. And I'm going to say something very, you know what? Allow me to cancel myself right now. Allow me to cancel myself right now. I think that many times these hip, cool church evangelical pastors and mega pastors, mega church pastors, simply don't know how to, how to handle their wives. They don't know what to do with them. They, 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 and I know this from my own life experience that a pastor's wife's role is very difficult, is very taxing on her. She is oftentimes the victim, the target of unfair attacks, unfair jealousies and bitternesses. She often gets a lot of grief. She's often overlooked, ignored. She's bypassed. And oftentimes she's used to get to the pastor. It's a very difficult, challenging role in churches. And I think what happens in the marriage in the private rooms of these church, of these pastors is the wives are really upset. They don't know where they fit in. They're, you know, harassed. They're used. They're, you know, hated. They're unfairly, unfairly many, in many respects. And the man says, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the role of pastors so that people will respect you. What? Okay, but you're, you're subverting scripture to make her more than what scripture allows her to be. And really what you're trying to do is just make it easy on yourself because now you can say, oh, my wife's a pastor, so you deal with her. She's, she's in charge. No, you're in charge. Be a man. Be a man. And if your wife is being hurt by another woman, you take authority over that. You say something. You defend your wife. You express love and commitment to your wife from the pulpit. You edify and admonish your wife and, and, and rejoice in her gifts and celebrate her and never make fun of her from the pulpit. Never make fun of her from the pulpit because she is your helpmate. She is... Uh, one with you in Christ Jesus, and she is your equal partner in the faith. And I think that's really why a lot of these pastors make their wives pastors, because they don't know how to handle the real treacherous road that a pastor's wife walks. So if that offends you, I'm sorry. Like I said, I just canceled myself. <laughs> it's always better to cancel yourself, right, guys? So those are my thoughts. I hope that helps. Thank you for the question. Number three, do angels see God as father or as their creator? They see him as creator. They see him as creator and they see him as holy, holy, holy. Because when you go to Isaiah chapter six, okay, you will see that that's what the angels are saying constantly in the presence of the father. They are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. They see him as God. They see him as creator. Now they know that he is our father, but what angels will never understand, they will never know. And this is why I think it's Peter who says that angels long to look into our redemption. They will never know God as father or redeemer. And they are missing out. And the scriptures are even clear that they are missing out. 
So what are the purposes of angels? The Bible says that they are ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's Hebrews 1.14. They are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Think about that. God has his holy, the Bible calls them holy ones, angels. There's also different classes of angels, seraphim, cherubim, uh, archangels. Uh, I think of there's three archangels, right? Three, yeah. Gabriel, Michael. No, there was three. Lucifer was the third. And in my theology anyway, I believe that Lucifer took the third of the angels and rebelled before before Genesis 1 verse 2. Um, so they are ministering spirits sent out to serve us. And they long to look into what we know the Father has, which is not just, not just creator, not just Lord, but Savior, Redeemer, and ultimately Father. And that is a very precious relationship. And the way that Peter expounds upon that is to say, Wow, even angels look onto this and they say, wow, I want in on that. So, uh, thank you for that question. I really appreciate that question and love it. And let's get back over to the chat because I'm sure I stirred some pots. Okay, so let's go here. Breakfast is the best. Yes, breakfast, every meal. When do you see? Uh, Christian praise and sermon. I do. I love a whole stack of pancakes. I tell people all the time, how can... Oh, you guys are still on breakfast here. Let me get down here. Does Waters, our church have a school of ministry that they send lesser experienced preachers to. Yes, I teach that. It's not a school of ministry officially, but I teach a leadership class to our guys uh, in the church because of what 2 Timothy, I'm going to pull out my keyboard here for a second, what 2 Timothy talks about. Nope, sorry, 1 Timothy. I don't know. I always get my 1 and 2 Timothy mixed up. Anybody with me on that? Is it? No, it is first. It is Second Timothy. Second Timothy 2 2. Yes. Ah, there we go. There we go. Guys, I like to be a little bit less inf- less formal in this setting, so I hope you appreciate it. Here's what Second Timothy 2 uh, 2 says. What you have heard from me, this is to a t- to a, to a pastor now, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Not enough pastors are doing this. Not enough pastors are raising up other guys in their church who are faithful to preach and to teach. And this is why we have, I think, a lot of untrained and immature men in ministry because they have not had the the chance to stretch their legs in an informal environment with a pastor who's already doing it. So we have a responsibility as pastors to do that. Thank you for the question, John, over in the chat. Uh, okay, let's take a look at what else we have. Hi, Jorge. Yes, so happy this question was asked. Anchor, I just had a conversation with someone the other day that was, that they were so offended by me saying that women are not called to be pastors. Yeah, welcome to the club, Anchor. <laughs> I think uh, the end of Proverbs is a perfect lesson for women who are wives looking for guidance. Yes, the virtuous wife, yes. By the way, Nicole, about Proverbs 31, I... I have a story about that. I put that on social media somewhere. No, no, no. You know what I did? I actually, back in the day, when I first had my first child, I was making websites in, that, in those days. And I made a website to my child. And then I had a picture of Cheryl on the website. I said, Cheryl is a Proverbs 31 wife all the way. And someone emailed me and they said, how dare you, you misogynistic pig, call your wife a Proverbs 31 woman, right? And they were totally just railing into me. So you know what I did? I sent them the text of Proverbs 31. 
in an email response. And I just want to put it up there because look at this. It says, an excellent wife who can find. Uh, the heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good. She seeks wool. And she rises while it is yet. She provides food. But then uh, down here, it says this in verse 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. <laughs> so I wrote back in the email. I said, here's some of the verses from Proverbs 31 because I'm, I'm pretty sure you didn't read it because that's why you're offended. And I want to let you know that this is what a Proverbs 31 wife gets. Praise from her husband, blessing from her children, um, the name excellent. Uh, she is trusted by her husband and she's profitable and she runs a business and she's exceptional at everything that she does. And I said, you know what? If you had a husband who did that for you, I bet you'd be a lot less offended by husbands who have a wife like that for themselves. I didn't get a response. <laughs> anyway, um, let's go back to the chat. Uh, so John Diaz, 100, 100%, 100%. Women are co-heirs of Christ, but not called to pastoral positions. But sadly and scarily, people justify dismissing the clear and concise word of the Father God. Yes, I know. Are there marriages in heaven? Okay, I'll get back to questions in the chat after we go through some of these other ones. Thanks, guys. Keep the chat going. Love it. Let's get back to the questions. Question number four. Can Satan hear my thoughts? Does he know what's in my heart? Quick answer. No, he does not. Uh, he is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. That means he is not everywhere at once. He is not all-powerful, and he is not all-knowing. So he cannot know your thoughts. But... And be careful of using Satan here because I don't think that Satan is attacking you. I think he's somewhere on the Russian-Ukraine border right now. That's where I think Satan is. <laughs> you know, he's trying to stir up the waters. But he goes to and fro throughout the earth. That's Job 2. He seeks, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's 1 Peter 5. But he also has demonic hordes underneath him and fallen angels who are activated around the world to attack you, to oppress you, to tempt you, to speak into your life. And I believe, and I say this, and I say it colorfully in my sermons, but I want to say it more clearly here, uh, the demonic, you know, um, forces that were assigned to you at birth have been watching you since birth. So they know what you do. They know what you've been through. They know how to bring up bad feelings. They know how to um, leverage hurts to get you in addiction and in bondage. So they will leverage hurts from your past to drive you into addiction. What I'm trying to say is that they have a book on you. God also has a book on you. That's Psalm 139. All the days of my life were written in your book before one of them came to be. But Satan has a book. The demonic horde has a book on you. They know how to tempt you. They know where your weak spots are, where your weak moments are, what your frustrating relationships are. And so sometimes, I say all that to say this, it seems like demons can hear your thoughts, but they can't. So... The, um, and they, they can't know your heart. So, so the best defense against the devil is the word of God, as Jesus exemplifies in Matthew chapter four in the temptations, the, it is written, it is written, it is written. The, the answer to, uh, Satan's thoughts entering your head or your heart is to deeply embed God's thoughts into your head, and into your heart. Uh, Psalm 68, thy word, I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Or is that Psalm 119? I forget. So meditate on the word of God, Joshua chapter one, 
you know, this word of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on both day and night. That's Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is on the law of the Lord is God, and on that line does meditate both day and night. I'm saying these from memory because I've done this myself. You've got to deeply give your heart to the word of God regularly and repeatedly. Memorize it. Love it. Meditate on it. Repeat it to yourself. Put it on your smartphone. First thing I do every day is I go to my Bible app, Version Bible app, and I get into the Word of God. That's the first thing I do every day. Not Twitter, not Facebook, not Instagram, not stock market, which are my, other than Facebook, are my other, <laughs> are my other you know, go-to moments with my phone. But get into the Scripture, first and foremost. It's so easy today because you can do this. To the Romans. You can have it read to Chapter you. One. So the best defense. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The best defense against the devil's seeding evil thoughts in you is to keep God's thoughts more prevalent in you. Thank you for the question. I hope that helps. Back to the chat for a second. Amen. People are so quick to be angry when they don't know or understand. That's true, yes. John Diaz, when enemy demonic influence is trying to use my wife to cause me to step out of my character in Christ, am I wrong for audibly rebuking Satan? <laughs> Ah, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that you're wrong. I would say that you're unwise. <laughs> I would say, don't call your wife Satan. That that should be pretty much, you know, that should be like level one marriage rules. So demons are like Google. We think they are reading our minds with the ads they put in front of us, but they're only reacting to what they are saying and seeking. Yeah, that's what we are saying and seeking. That's a good analogy, Steve, and I, I appreciate that. That's good. That's good. Okay, let's continue with the questions. They came in earlier, then we'll get to the ones that are in the chat. Question number five. This person says, first, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 16. I love the Lord with all my heart, believe his word is true. But then this says this, now much older, I'm a little frustrated and disappointed because I've not received the Holy Spirit slash gift of tongues. I have gone to the altar many times over the last several years and prayed over uh, on my own over this, but to no avail. Is there something wrong with me? Am I doing something wrong? I don't know why God wouldn't want me to have this gift. It says in the Bible that God wants all of his people to speak in tongues. They prayed over me and my husband together, and he received the gift of tongues immediately. Please advise. Thank you. Okay, a couple of things that I want to correct about your question first is, no, the Bible does not say that God wants all his people to speak in tongues. Uh, the Bible is very clear that that is not the case, actually. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about that God has appointed in the church first apostles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, gifts of healing, helping um, administration, various gifts of tongue, various kinds of tongues, and then he says these questions, these very, what you would call hypothetical questions, which all have the answer no to them. In verse 29, he says, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healings? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. And then verse 31, he says, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. So what is Paul doing there? He's making very clear that it is God who apportions to his church the gift ministries of the ascended Christ, that's Ephesians 4, and then the administrative gifts of Romans 12, and then the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, as he sees fit, or more similarly, some, more similarly, summarily, summarily, or to put it a better way, <laughs> Hebrews 2, 4 says that God bore witness to the gospel by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. According to his will, 
The gifts of the Spirit are administered. Now, to your question about praying for tongues, Paul says, I, now you might be reading what Paul says in 1 Corinthians where he says, I would that you all speak in tongues. And then he says, I speak in tongues more than you all. And then he also says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. But then he says, I would much rather that you all prophesy. So I would think that it's very clear to me on the page of Scripture that Paul wants us all to pray for prophetic gifts. What is prophecy? Prophecy is declaring God's word to a situation God's perspective to a situation based on God's word to a situation in the moment. I believe that that's what prophecy is. And I think that a lot of prophecy happens when I preach. There's also um, an abusive prophecy that you want to stay away from, which is um, going up to people and saying, the Lord told me to tell you, especially strangers. Like, you don't do this. Don't do this to strangers. The Lord told me to tell you. Don't do that. Don't be a weirdo. Okay, you don't have no relationship with that person. I think that prophecy exists in the context of relationship. And when you see it in the book of Acts, it's always people who know each other. They're prophesying over each other. Okay, so, um, and it can happen in the public meeting and the public gathering of the church, but don't beat yourself up over this. You're, you might not be given the gift of tongues. It's okay. It doesn't make you, also, by the way, it doesn't mean you haven't received the Holy Spirit. You absolutely have. If you believe on Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. There's one baptism, the Bible says, one spirit, and we were all baptized into the one, one spirit in Christ, by one spirit into Christ, right? So you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not fraction himself off and say, I'm going to, oh, he, he speaks in tongues. He's getting 90% of me. Oh, oh, she speaks not in tongues. Well, she's only going to get 2%. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit is third person of the Trinity. He cannot separate himself. He is all in you. You are filled with the Holy Ghost and you must be repeatedly filled with the Holy Ghost. And I would say that pray for the filling of the Holy Ghost. I don't believe in rebaptism of the Holy Spirit, but I do believe in refilling of the Holy Spirit, right? So you receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. That's John chapter 20. We talked about that yesterday. Then you have repeated moments where the Holy Spirit empowers you, empowers you. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit too, Acts chapter 2, and then Ephesians chapter 19. The Ephesian elders were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. And you say, well, why did God put the tongues on display in Acts 2 and, and, if he, and other places in, in, uh, in the book of Acts? It's because they had a purpose in that moment to reveal the glory of God to people who spoke those languages. So there are the sign gift of tongues to speak in other people's languages. Then there are the tongues of angels, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. And then there's private tongues, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14. It's a gift that has been given to some. And I have said this to my own demo, to my, to my own uh, rebuke, if you will, that I think God gives the spiritual gift of tongues for private prayer to people who are stubborn in their prayers. <laughs> that people who wouldn't pray normally for things, God says, I'm going to just give you the gift of tongues so that you'll pray for things in another language. You won't even know what you're praying for. And then I'll get my, I'll get my will accomplished through those prayers. That's now, is there a scripture to say that that's true? No. It says that we edify ourselves when we speak in tongues. We don't edify others. We build up our faith in tongues. That's Jude. Uh, but you know, I don't think that you have to beat yourself at, up at all about not having the gift of tongues. But pursue spiritual gifts and pursue, more importantly, the gift of prophecy to be able to speak God's will over a certain situation in the moment. And number three, ask God to fill you with the Holy Ghost, not tongues. Ask God to fill you with the Holy Ghost. And if tongues come, then tongues comes. He could give you tongues later on. I don't know. But it's not your decision. It's his decision. Part of Christian discipleship is being okay with what God gives you. John the Baptist said, a man can only receive what is given him from heaven. That He said that. As people were saying to John, hey, a lot of people are leaving your church to go to Jesus' church. I'm paraphrasing. But he says, I told you I'm not the Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. And a man can only receive what has been given him from heaven. 
If you live like that, I think you're going to do much better in your life with Christ and you'll be much more happy and at ease. So thank you for the question. Let's get to question number six and then we'll go to the chat. This one's a very difficult question. My family members, whom I would describe as, quote, new age agnostic types, will often quote Genesis 6, 1 to 4, claiming demons had sex with humans, creating giants. Seems ridiculous, but of course they bring up the book of Enoch, which expands on it. Easier for me as a Christian to discern this, but why does Peter and Jude reference this book? Is there more to this than I am understanding? Okay, well, I'm also reading a book by Michael Heiser, and he believes that exact thing. Um that the Nephilim, Nephilim, men of renown, and let's go to the Logos cam here. Uh, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, this is Genesis 6, daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. They took wives as they chose. The Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Now that's not about age, by the way. That's about how long from this moment that God said that to the flood. So he puts a timestamp on the, on the flood to come. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore them children. These were mighty men of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Michael Heisner actually believes, is it Heisner or Heiser? I think it's Heisner. If you read his book, The Unseen Realm, he actually talks about this passage saying that what Nephilim are, and, and giants in the land, the Anaks and the Anakim, who appear before the flood and after the flood, that it is indeed um, angels having sex with women and producing glorious offspring, powerful human beings. Do I believe that? And you, met, you mentioned that Peter and Jude reference this book. I think Michael Heisner makes a compelling case. I think that the jury's still out on whether that is gospel truth. But to your question, to your original question of new age agnostic, the greater thing that you should be worried about concerning your family is, are they believers in Christ? And clearly, if they're New Age agnostic, they are not. So you need to pray that they repent and turn from their sins and claim, not a, and stop worrying about demon, uh, demons having sex with humans or angels having sex with humans. And start worrying about their eternal salvation, right? That, this is classic uh, distraction by the enemy, <laughs> Let me get them worried about whether those things are actually demons or angels having sex with humans, and then they can frustrate themselves over that and not talk about Jesus. When you're around your non-saved Christian friends or family members, I would say non-saved Christian, non-saved family members or friends, be leery of getting into discussions about non-essentials concerning salvation. Your job is to be the salt and the light. Your job is to be a witness for Christ. Your job is to tell them the good things that God has done in your life. And so I wouldn't worry about that. And if they bring this stuff up, you say, you know, I'm not sure, but let me tell you about church yesterday. It was amazing. Pastor preached and he said something was so powerful. And, you know, just go off on that. Like, turn a direction onto the things that matter for unbelievers. No one's getting to heaven because they believe the right thing about Genesis 6. Okay. And yes, I am somewhat um, sneaking around the question here. <laughs> So thank you for the question. Let's go back to the chat. Amen. Meditate on the word. Brian, five, Jean, Barbara Jean, Marsha, Satan working with the algorithm. Christian praise, worship, and sermons. I'm glad this question came up. A man of God from another church told me that I didn't have the Holy Spirit because I didn't speak in tongues. He told me I only had a baby version of the Spirit. My goodness. Where do people get this stuff? 
What a bunch of crap. There's no such thing. Remind him that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. Not, a, not just this. He is not the Jedi force. He is the person of God dwelling in you. And he's not a baby. There's <laughs> Only Jesus was a baby. And very temporarily, by the way. Marcia says, I've also heard some other pastors saying tongues is a fraud. Yeah, well, they're not reading the scriptures, Marcia. I've heard some tongues that sound more like witchcraft spells. Yes, the devil will counterfeit tongues. And that's what we always have to be careful of. And I'm you can tell very easily when tongues are counterfeit. Are they under control? Do they draw attention to themselves? Is it just erratic speech? Because there's difference. You can tell the difference between erratic speech and the and the gift of glossolalia. It's very easy once you see, once you heard both. So, the gift ministries of the Holy Spirit are to build up the church, build up the Christian. And if it's drawing attention to the Christian and distracting the church and dividing the church, it is a counterfeit. I hope that helps, Marsha. Thank you for uh, saying that. Because you know what? The, the, pastors, the pastors who say tongues have ended have no biblical basis for saying that. The passage that they actually quote to say that it's over is such a ridiculous passage. I don't know what to say. It's not a ridiculous passage. It's a ridiculous use of that passage, which is 1 Corinthians 1.13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am noisy, clang, gonging, noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And then he says at the end, this is that great love passage, right? Love never ends. As, per, as for prophecies, they will pass away. For tongues, they will cease. And then what, what some <laughs> expositors do is they say, see, tongues, are, tongues have ended. No, they haven't. Tongues have been in the church ever since the apostles lived on the earth. And I have a friend in ministry who is doing doctoral thesis on this, and he has looked up and researched countless examples of tongues making uh, appearances throughout church history in various places, on various continents, in various nations, and in various people groups. God has a purpose for it in every age. But this is a terrible proof text for tongue ceasing, because look at the very next line. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Well, knowledge isn't done. It's still here. It will, worldly knowledge will pass away. Yes. When God, when Jesus comes back again, tongues will no longer be necessary in heaven. We will be perfected. So the proof text that they use in 1 Corinthians 13 to suggest that t tongues are over is uh, a bad argument. And I would never um, support it. So but back to it, pre, uh, seek the greater gifts, prophecy, and um, seek a heart of humility, Romans 12, 3, that you might share your gifts with humility and help people rather than draw attention to yourself. Okay, question number seven. Are we on seven already? And we are 44 minutes in. Let's go to that. What does the Bible teach about being cool under pressure? Should Christians defend themselves uh, in a bit? Is it biblical? And if so, to what degree? Okay, well, I'm going to bring us over to Philippians 4 for this answer. Here's what the Bible teaches about being cool under pressure. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And I always say it again, rejoice. Now look at the next line. Everybody knows this phrase, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And I always say it again, rejoice. We wrote a song about that back in the old, old day. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Okay. Why don't we do songs about the next verse? Let your reasonableness, or another translation says gentleness, same word, 
be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So that is what the Bible says about um, being cool under pressure. Let your gentleness be made known, your reasonableness be made known to everyone. What is gentleness? Another, another synonym in the Bible for gentleness is meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. That you have the right, you have the power to defend yourself or fight for yourself. But you use that power not to do that, but to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. Historically in the church, that is the greatest example of meekness. Strong people who do not use their strength to fight for themselves, but for those who can't. To your second question, by the way, Jesus exemplified that. To your second question, should Christians defend themselves as a biblical? Yes, they should defend their families and their lives wherever reasonable force is necessary, I do believe, um, and legal. Okay, so follow the laws of the state here and don't be bragging about your license to carry. That's gentleness, that's meekness, that's strength under control. Um, it's, now, again, you know, this question, some, for some reason, it comes up on 10 questions constantly. And I think it's because the Second Amendment is always, you know, just a few Supreme Court justice nominations away from being gone, <laughs> it seems anyway. So we're worried about that. And then we're worried about, well, am I taking the proper stance? Am I taking the biblical stance on the Second Amendment? The Second Amendment has nothing to do with the Bible. Just make sure you understand that. The Second Amendment has everything to do with what the Constitution states and what our founding fathers saw fit as your right as a human being to maintain freedom and to defend your family and to hunt, <laughs> mostly to hunt. So I have no problem with the Second Amendment. I love the Second Amendment. And full disclosure, I have my license to carry. I just said not to brag about it, and I just did. I'm not bragging, I'm just telling you. Anyway, there is no way you can make an argument that you should just let some rapist come in and rape your family and kill your kids and say, oh, well, I'm suffering for Jesus. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> Defend them. Shoot the sucker if you have to, honestly, because God commands you to love your wife. Loving your wife means defending or protecting her and your children. Loving them means defending and protecting them. So defend them. Yourself, yes, where it's reasonable. We're at strength under control. Christians are not called to go to the cross. I know we say that. We say, oh, we're take up your cross and follow Jesus. That means bear the rejection of the world, the scorn of the world, the hatred of the world. But when violence is entering the picture, there are laws about this, and we are to call, follow the laws of the, of, the, of the scriptures where they do not, I'm sorry, the laws of the land where they do not conflict with the laws of scripture. Romans 13 we obey government. Well, the government right now makes allowances for us to defend ourselves. We should take full advantage of that. And some people will say, well, what about turning the other cheek? Again, and I've done this on this show, I think two times other than this. The turn, your other, turn the other cheek passage is referencing a law that was on the books in Rome that a Roman soldier had the right to at any moment enact capital punishment upon a Jew or any commoner and slap them across the face publicly and shamefully to turn the other cheek. Now, how they would do that? This is going to be kind of interesting for you. Contextual information. They would slap, boom. Oh, I'm sorry. No, they would slap backhand to right cheek like that. 
Now, did you know that in ancient Rome, a common form of greeting was to place your open hand palm on the right cheek, on the left cheek of the person you were greeting to say, you are my brother. Now think about this. You get slapped and your cheek is facing this way, backhand from the Roman centurion. When you turn the other cheek, you're not saying slap me again. I'm a glutton for punishment. No, you are saying I am your brother. We are equals. Whether or not you believe that doesn't matter. I know you're made in the image of God. I'm made in the image of God. And all your philosophies about how Rome is the light and is great and we're petty peasants doesn't jive with the truth of Scripture. That changes things, doesn't it, about that text? I hope that helps. Okay. Back to the chat. Hey, Tal. Snuck out of a meeting to be here. Okay, I will be quiet. I always watch it later, but wanted to take one of these lives. Thanks. Thanks, Tal, for being here. And I will not tell anybody, even though I know who you work for. <laughs> Barbara Gina, I love how you always answer the questions with scriptures and then explain thank you. Thanks, Barbara. Elaine, hi, Elaine. When you mentioned Seabass in Dumb and Dumber dinner scene, you know that's joy and laughter. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Kick his butt, Seabass. <laughs> I won't say the real line. Okay. Question number eight. I am single and I am really trying to find a good Christian woman to date with the world dating completely different than what scripture says. I find it extremely difficult. How do I date as a single Christian? Well, thank you for this question. Uh, and this is a man or is this a woman? Yes, this is a man. Got <laughs> to make sure I'm clear. A uh, couple things about this that I want to say right off the bat. Be weary of who you ask for advice from on dating as a Christian. That's my first piece of advice because I'm a married man. I've been married 20, almost 22 years. And I'm going to tell you that for some reason, some extreme level of pride, arrogance, and superiority wraps married people up as soon as they're married concerning how to date. Did, did I make myself clear there? Which is, Married people often do not remember how hard it is to date when you're single. They just don't. They think they do because they've been married. And then they, what happens is the devil plays on them and says, uh, you, you know, if you were out there, scores of people would be interested in you. You should go out there again. So they've got this arrogance to them and they forget what it's like to be in the dating world. Because if they think back to when they were single, and I'm, I'm thinking back to myself, it's filled with games you know, the mental games, the emotional games, the stupid games. And then I was saying this to my friend the other day. I couldn't imagine, no, I was saying this to Cheryl. I couldn't imagine being in the dating world with Facebook. Thank God I got married before Facebook, seven years before Facebook was a thing. Thank God. Uh, I couldn't imagine what it would be like in, in the Instagram world and all this social media stuff. I, I imagine it is extremely difficult, as you say. So first be leery of who you ask advice from. Thank you for asking me. Now, since you asked me, I'm going to give you my, my advice. Take number one, a self-assessment. A self-assessment is understand who you are before you go finding who you think you should have as a married partner. Number one, how is your relationship to God? Number two, how committed to church are you? Because you've got to get into a church. By the way, that's where you can meet some single ladies who love Jesus. <laughs> I met my wife in church. I met my wife in a church basement. Praise God. 
And I think that's the best place to meet uh, spouses. Now, a self-assessment also includes what kind of person are you beyond your Christian faith? Are you a shy person? Do you have a problem walking up to somebody and say, hi, my name is so-and-so. Who are you? I mean, can you do that? If you can't do that, you've got to find alternate forms of trying to find a date. You've got to, again, get to a church, get into a small group, get into, I don't know, singles ministry, whatever's available at your church, and mingle in groups. Sometimes that's the easiest way to get to know somebody. And then, and then, you know, with the world dating completely differently, as you say, you're exactly right. You don't sleep with them. You don't fornicate. You don't do what the world does. You don't jump into bed. Every romantic comedy, they meet, bed. And then they work out the relationship and then they get married. Like that's exactly the world's mantra and it's exactly antithetical, antithetical to scripture. So it's difficult because you're bombarded with this language of have sex, you know, uh, do what feels right, um, Tinder, swipe right, swipe left, social media, stalk them, <laughs> like their stuff, play the little games on social media to make sure that they know that you like them and you like, and you know, ugh. and then, so are you a bold person? Are you a shy person? You're going to have to make sure that you do things that are appropriate for your shyness and boldness level. Getting into church is, uh, is supremely important. But then the last thing that I would suggest is pray. And I do mean this, pray and fast, not for a spouse, but for God's will to be accomplished in your life and for you to know the Father. I'm going to give you a quick story. I have a brother in Christ. I call him my spiritual son. He's a mighty man of God. And we were fasting and praying as a church last January, and he spent the fasting and praying time with the Lord. He did it, fasted and prayed three days. I'll never forget that he saw me after the fast and prayer, and he said, the Lord told me in my fasting and prayer time that I'm going to be married before the world, before the end of the year. And I kind of dismissed it. I was like, okay, you know, good. Yay. Well, guess what? He met a girl four months later. He got married three months later, and now they're expecting twins. Hi, Josh. <laughs> and he's a mighty man of God, and I love him to death. And you know what? Uh, he prayed. He, and you know what he also did was he made sure to only date a Christian who loved Jesus. And you know how he found her was on a dating site where you put your bio, and this is how you should do it as a Christian. And her her bio said, I will only date committed Christian men. So put it right out there as a Christian. You are a Christian. You only want to marry a Christian. That's scriptural. Do not be fake. That would be another advice. Don't compromise your values. If if you're compromising your values to date them, you're going to compromise your values when you're married to them. Oh, one other thing, and it's kind of important for Christians to take in to, to take in mind, keep in mind. There are many ways of seeing this book. Do they take this book as the literal word of God or do they not? Because if they do not, you probably and you do, do not take them. If they don't and you don't, well then have at it. <laughs> I think you should. But nonetheless, there are different versions of Christian too. So you want a Christian who takes very sir, uh, seriously the words of scripture. Those are my opening uh, advice remarks to you. There could be tons of other advice I could offer you, but keep God first, get into church, know who you are, live accordingly. I hope that helps. Number uh, nine, I recently started to attend a non-denominational church and I absolutely love it. I was raised in a Catholic home where we went to church on Sunday and holidays, but never truly knew God. Typo, K-N. I told my mom that my children would not be doing their sacraments, First Communion, Confirmation in the Catholic Church, and she did not seem very happy at all. I'm sure not. 
I guess what I'm asking is, could you explain to me the difference between Catholic and Christian? I've tried researching it, but there's so much information, I don't know what is true. There is a lot of information, uh, that's for sure. I'm going to give you the quick rundown version. The difference between Catholics and Christians, by the way, a lot of Catholics are Christians because they trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and they consider themselves saved because of Jesus' complete and total sacrifice. The difference, though, comes down to the doctrines of the churches. The doctrines of Catholics and Protestants are very different on many key issues. Number one, the authority of Scripture. Protestants believe in sola scriptura. That means that everything that we need to know for life and practice in, the, in, in God is in this book. Everything that we need to know regarding our relationship with God and how we should operate as the church is in this book. If it's not in this book, we don't add to it. We don't take away from this book. The Catholic Church does not believe that. They believe that it is the church's tradition and scripture that are on equal footing, and some even put tradition above scripture in Catholic uh, faith. And so the church, the church, the church, that's why your mom is so upset about First Communion and Confirmation, because that's the church, the church, the church, that's tradition. But what you can really say to her simply is, um, I want the traditions of my faith to mean something for my kids. I want them to grow in Christ. And so Protestants typically dedicate children to Christ uh, according to Scripture, because it's found in Scripture in Samuel and in Jesus' birth. You know, Jesus was never confirmed. <laughs> Nor was there any practice of communion, uh, first communion or confirmation in the Bible. Again, church tradition is on equal footing with biblical truth. That's just the first layer of the differences between the Catholics and the Protestants. Second, second layer is the efficacy and the satisfactory work of Jesus' death on the cross. So Catholics believe in something called purgatory and sacraments, which are means of grace by which you partner with God's grace in achieving your salvation. Now, they won't tell you that straight up, but it is true. So confession, um, taking the Eucharist, uh, well, there's several others. And I don't, um, obviously, you know, First Communion and, and Confirmation are these sacramental practices that partner with God's grace in saving you. This is not scriptural because the scriptures make very clear in Hebrews and elsewhere that Jesus' sacrifice was complete and total and does not need to be added to for your salvation. The thief on the cross had no chance to get baptized, confirmed, to memorize scripture. He had no, I, mean, I would just imagine him getting to heaven and be like, whoa, this was unexpected. <laughs> because he had nothing going for him. That was a picture of the Christian faith, the truth of our salvation. And I would be very calm when discussing with your mom and don't be angry and don't get worked up. But we're just scratching the surface and I'm limited on time. And that's just a couple of answers of why she's unhappy. And those are some of the differences that uh, pertain to your situation. And I would say to your mother, please respect my wishes as I'm their mother, not you. <laughs> some Maybe say it nicer than that because I don't know. Sometimes I'm a little bit coarse. Okay. Question number 10. At the end of the tribulation, when there are still saints and sinners alive, would Jesus take the saints to heaven so that the, only the wicked sinners live into the millennium? Or do saints move alive into the millennium in their physical bodies? I believe that saints live into millennium in their physical bodies as mortals. I heard a preacher recently say that the saints still living at the end of the tribulation would be raptured to heaven so that only the wicked live into the millennium. In my studies, I haven't found that to be true. What is your Bible-based belief? My Bible-based belief was expounded very clearly in the second season of The Deep End. So go back to the archives and look up what I talked about on the tribulation, on the millennium, and on the rapture. Three things. 
Uh, real quick, the rapture is a very recent theological doctrine. Started by J.N. Darby, an Anglican priest who became um, the founder of a, a, another branch of Christianity, leading to several other versions of Christianity. Anyway, he created a um, study Bible called the J.N. Darby Study Bible, where he expounds on this doctrine. Very recent. I, saw, I think that was 1740 or 1760. This question came up earlier, I think two episodes ago. But anyway, understand that these modern day views of the millennium and the tri uh, tribulation and the rapture are all rooted in a very recent, in terms of historical narrative of the Christian church, development based on one man who was an Anglican priest in the 1700s. Just know that. Go back and watch the episode. I have no problem with people being pre-millennialists, all-millennialists, post-millennialists, or pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib people. I, you know what? I'm a pan-tribulationist. It's all going to pan out, okay? God's got that. But there are definite arguments you need to be aware of to make to uh, understand the timeline and the schedule for the end times. And you, co you could very quickly get too caught up in those timelines where you're assuming something to be true that should not be assumed, such as, well, Jesus is coming back at any moment, so I don't need to work, and I don't need to save, and I don't need to live like... Watch out for how those views shape providing for your family, providing for yourself, and not being a burden upon society or others. Um, when it comes to the millennium, real quick, to answer your question directly, because I don't want to avoid it, it says, um, will Jesus take saints to heaven at the end of the tribulation, a lot of people believe that the tribulation, some, some believe that he'll take them out of the tribulation midway or before the tribulation. You are taking a post-tribulation stance here on the question, so will he take them to heaven? No, that view says that he comes back at the end of the tribulation with the saints and he rules and reigns in the millennium for a thousand years with the saints ruling and reigning with him over pagans and sinners who are still alive after the tribulation. Uh, so that only the wicked... No, I think that answers that question. The saints are also, according to that view, in their um, resurrected body. Just so you know. Go back and watch. That's a huge question. I shouldn't have saved that for last, but I did. <laughs> Check out season two of The Deep End, and it really gets good around episode 10 to 11. And then we talk about the millennium. Thanks for the question, guys. It's been awesome. I hope you've appreciated the bonus episode of 10 Questions with Tim. Glad to be with you guys. TimHatchLive.com. Check out the social media channels. I'm glad that you were here, and I will see you Tuesday night for The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. God bless. <laughs>